Otherwise, with Nancy Richards. Thanks very much, Asanda. Otherwise, it is Talking Women with me, Nancy Richards, also with Kim Winter and Rob Parkin on the uh, other side of the glass today. So what we have on Otherwise today on the uh, show, femaleness in the workplace. What does that really mean? We're going to be talking to Aidan Cholls of the Narrative Lab, who's looked looked into both its meaning and its usefulness. And in similar vein, we'll be getting some feedback on a research survey done by Regus on the workplace as it suits or doesn't suit a working mum. We're going to be talking to Kirsten Morgendahl of Regus to, to get the lowdown on that one. And finally, journalist, author, Corin Tyura Jays talks about her conversion to Islam. Looking forward to having a chat to her. That's after the news headlines at 1.30. What's news? Well, what's news is that women in the spotlight, Ria Pieka, not the first police commissioner to have no police experience, but her presence in this role very much under question. She herself says, in the hundred years of the history of the police, they introduced the woman. Is that a challenge? I don't know. I don't have the answer. Are we having a veiled gender debate, she asks. What is the discomfort? So your thoughts, is it her femaleness or her ability that's in question? Something to pop us uh, your thoughts on, let us know. We're on Facebook. It's otherwise on SAFM. Let us know. What is very much in question, though, is the huge amount of pregnant schoolgirls, estimated between the years 2009 and 2010 to have been around about 89,000, though there are different, uh, different numbers on that one. But, and by province, the lowest number seemed to happen in the Western Cape at 0.5%, and the highest in Limpopo, which is something like 2.6%, I think it is. And if I'm not mistaken, it's sort of in line with educational achievement. So I guess the, the point, the, the answer is perhaps we need to educate our children better, and it won't be happening, our girl children in particular. Looking further afield, I see that five villagers have confessed to gang-raping a Swiss tourist in central India. Incident has renewed the focus on rampant violence against women in India, and I guess uh, our focus is never far afield from that sort of situation here in South Africa. And on the the green front, uh, interesting that here in the Cape, five tons of dead fish have been removed after washing up, most of them at the mouth of the lagoon in Millerton. Well, pollution control officers are querying why it should be and wondering if it's connected perhaps to an oil leak from the Seli 1 shipwreck in Tableview, but it seems that the two are not linked. However, it's suspected that the link could be as a result of high temperatures experienced this week. A spokesperson says that fish can die if there's not enough oxygen in the water, which is a little bit of a concern. So the warmer the waters get, the more our fish dying out, and we know that our fish are already very, very threatened. So, at, uh, better news, though, on the green and health front, I guess, from this one from Lavender Hill, an area known, as you probably know, for its very high levels of gang violence and crime here on the Cape Flats. They've got a lavender project growing there, and it seems to be bringing a little bit of hope and health to all. Rather nice to see quoted in the Sunday Times, Yanap Tilip is, uh, is convinced that her children have started sleeping better after she took up the baking of the lavender-flavoured cookies at night. She says, it's the smell of the lavender. It calms them. Well, wouldn't that be nice if just a little bit of smell of lavender could waft around the whole of South Africa, and we could all be so much calmer. Uh, just lastly, Fleur de Cap Theatre Awards took place last night to much, uh, much support and applause. And wonderful. I'm just going to read you out the names of the winning women because, hey, why not? Best Director, Yale Farber for Miss Julie. Best Performance by a lead actress in a play, Juanita Adams for Bosman and Lena as uh, Lena. Best Performance, too, for a supporting actress was Toko Nshinga, also for Miss Julie. 
and Best Performance by a Supporting Actress in a Musical or Theatre Show with Sharon Williams-Ross for uh, Cabaret. For Best New Director, Kim Kerfoot took the title for Statements After an Arrest under the Immorality Act and for Angela Nemov, Best Costume Designer for the Comedy of Errors. Forgive me, guys, for not reading out your, your accolades there, but I think that right now it's women that we're talking about here on Otherwise. Stay with us. Otherwise on SAFM. Well, we're talking, uh, talking there earlier about pregnant schoolgirls, but what about pregnant, uh, pregnant mothers or pregnant women and women in the workplace, the women's workplace? That's what we're really looking at in the first half of the show today, because we have on the line Kirsten Morgendahl. She's the area director for Readers, who have some feedback on their recent survey all about working mums and the workplace. We've got her on the line. Hi, Kirsten. Hi, Nancy. Nice to have you with us. Thank you. It was decided to undertake this particular bit of research, because why? Because we really wanted to find out what measures were critical in encouraging returning mothers back into the workforce. Um, they're such an important part of the workforce, and yet we're finding that the burden of childcare forces them out of employment after maternity. Okay, so it's to try and get women back in again. Is it because they are concerned about the conditions at work, or is it because they perhaps just rather stay at home and look after their babies? I mean, what do we know? Well, they really just, we, we find that they're, they're spending so many hours looking after their children that they actually need a radical change in work habits in order to be able to come back. So really, we found a whole bunch of things. Do you want me to go through them? Yes, yes. Okay, well, now so now these are, this is what you found out about what the women want? Yeah, or? so this is what women are saying, and this is really 26,000 business people from 90 countries. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, from senior managers all the way to business owners, we're really saying that they, 97% said that they'd like to work closer to home in order to obviously be able to be near to their kids. Um, Another big uh, factor was flexible working hours, which are really important to them. Um, A lot of mums were saying that they need near-site crash facilities. Uh, Video conferencing came up instead of travel, and also job sharing. Mm. So those were some of our interesting findings on this um, particular uh, research project. Very interesting. 26,000 people, presumably women, Mm-hmm. Over 90 countries, so this yes. is a global take. It is a global take, but it's also very relevant to the South African market. We obviously there were lots of South African respondents, so we compared to the global findings, and it was very much in line with South African feedback. So, what what are we going to do with this? I mean, can we break these down a little bit? Option to work closer to home, which obviously sort of cut down travel time. You know, some of these things are. Absolutely right, mm. but very difficult to achieve. I mean, to try and get 97% of all working mums working closer to home is no easy, no easy it, is, it isn't easy at all, but it's, it's such a valuable pool of, of employment pool of, of people that we're missing out on. I mean, I, I just look, if you don't mind me mentioning the company that I work for, which is Regis, mm. uh, we offer flexible workspace solutions. So, um, you know, working mums can really work close to home because we have so many locations throughout Johannesburg, for example, and Cape Town. So it actually works really well there. But I think a lot of companies need to rethink, um, instead of having their offices in CBD-type areas, but perhaps looking at smaller offices in in um, sort of com- uh, residential hubs, which would really, really help. I know it sounds pie in the sky, but I think it's, it could really work. It sounds a little bit like we could be leaning too far in one direction. I mean, whilst I hear what you say, we've got all mm. this workforce who's out there and is reluctant to come back into the workplace. 
um, assuming that there are plenty of jobs for them. But, you know, we could be pushing, we could be pushing too far in one direction and sort of sacrificing on another. I really don't think so. I think returning moms could really um, help in, in numerous ways. I mean, it sounds so sort of philosophical, but we're looking at increased GDP, sustained growth in companies, bridging skills gaps, uh, even fighting poverty. I know that sounds silly, but a lot of mothers can't return just simply because they can't. Um, and this is just important, such an important part of, of, of the employment field that we actually cannot ignore. Mm. And the flexible working hours? I think I mean, that you know, again, that it's, a good, it's a good line, but actually, <laughs> actually putting it into action, um, you know, if you're going to have the woman working flexible hours when everybody else is at the office trying to get things done and she's not there, mm. it's a problem. Well, I think for me, looking, I mean, we work with numerous companies and flexible hours are definitely the way people are going. I mean, mm. it sounds very utopian, but really if, if you're hiring the right people, um, the results really show. So um, flexible hours are something that I see on a daily basis, even with my own team, um, and it's something that people need to look at pretty seriously. Yes, again, you know, come back to how we're actually going to make this work right across mm. all. So if you're a smaller company, it can work. It's more difficult if it's a, a great big company. Mm. Quite mm. a surprise not to see in-house crash facilities. We've got near-site yeah. Yeah. Um, I've always wondered about the in-house crash facilities. You know, they're probably going to be rushing up and down, looking after their babies. You know, your baby isn't six months forever. Your baby suddenly becomes mm. six years old. How many staff do you have running a crash that, where you've got very different ages? Do we just look at breastfeeding age babies? What, what are we? How does that work? It's, it's really not a common thing in South Africa. I mean, that's why. Is it common no anywhere in the world? It's becoming more common, and, and companies that actually do offer it are, are companies that are people want to work for. So um, if you do find it, people are sort of, it's one of the key factors in wanting to join that company. Mm. But we, we actually don't offer it. So people generally want to work where there's a crash close by or at least on their route to work. So it's not too much, it doesn't have to be just nearby. It can be at least on their route home or to work or mm. from work. The other interesting thing I see is that 52% of respondents believe that more vacation days are the solution to getting more work, which is why a lot of women go into teaching because they get all the school holidays as well. <laughs> um, more, more off days? They actually found that that wasn't as important as having ultimate flexibility. So the respondents preferred working closer to home in flexible hours rather than sporadic vacation days. They'd rather get into a habit of a, a completely radical change of, of their work habit as opposed to um, vacation days, interestingly enough. What are you going to do with all this information? Are you going to sort of hand it out to all the companies who you think might like to avail themselves of getting more working women, more working mothers, sorry, um, you know, because it may not be every country that every company that is keen to get more working mums. Absolutely. Well, we spread the news. This is obviously part of the research that we've done globally, as far, and then it's sort of it filters down to every country and we're hoping to spread this message as much as possible because we're quite passionate about it and obviously the findings speak for themselves. So really it's just hoping that we can get this out, radio stations, newspapers, 
as far as possible so that people realize it's such an important part of the workforce. Well, let's, let's help you spread the word. If anybody would like to get hold of this online and perhaps working mums or somebody who's pregnant might like to get hold of the information, they can sort of, you know, put it under the noses of the companies <laughs> that they'd like to Absolutely, work. Yes. They may find it, is it online? Um, they can actually contact our PR agency, um, or they can come. To, they can contact myself at, Re- at Regis if they'd like, and I can. Put can we not give out your website? You can. It's www.regis.co.za. Okay, lovely. Well, why don't we do that? And presumably they'll be able to find their way to wherever they need to be. Excellent. Thank you. Lovely. Thanks, Kirsten. On behalf of all working mums, thanks very much for what you've done. Thank you, Nancy. Take care. Bye bye. Kirsten Morgendahl, and she is uh, Area Director for Regis, and if you'd like to find out a little bit more about that recent uh, survey that they've done on working mums, 26,000 people, women presumably, over 90 countries. Now, how's that for a survey? Check it out, www.regus.co.za. Otherwise, with Nancy Richards. So, that's what working mums need if they are to be persuaded back into the workplace, but... Aidan Choles, who is the co-founder and managing director of the Narrative Lab, which is an organisational and development and research consultancy, has been looking at what femaleness in the workplace really means. Femaleness. We've got him on the line. Hi, Aidan. Good afternoon. Nice to have you with us. Was it interesting to hear what uh, Kirsten had to say? Yeah, very, very fascinating. I mean, uh, uh, quite quite interesting uh, research results when you look at, you know, issues around how employees, I mean, across the gender line are experiencing uh, work and, and work life and then this thing that we call work-life balance and, and what some of the solutions and, and the desires are in order to, you know, remain productive and remain connected to the organization. Yeah, I guess it would be really interesting also to hear, you know, of those women, do they really want to go back? Is it really going to make a big difference? I, I don't know. You know, each and every woman will be different. But the, the work that you've done, you talk about humanizing the workplace and the role of femaleness. What do you mean by femaleness? Well, uh, it's a really interesting um, definition because, you know, we, we are used to speaking about men and women along gender lines. Uh, but I think we need to start speaking about things like our maleness and our femaleness because we, we're, we're a bit more than just what our gender is. And, uh, and, and our, you know, a, a lot of interesting things comes uh, with our gender, but there are a lot of things that we choose as part of how we live out our lives. And, and, and that, that's what I think looking at femaleness and maleness is, is getting an idea of, of, of what are those uh, key aspects of your personality that you want to draw on and amplify uh, as you as you explore what what living out a chosen maleness is or a chosen femaleness is, uh, a lot of the time I find people kind of being kind of on the receiving end of what they think their gender says they have to be either mm-hmm. in, in in the in the home life or in, and especially in the focus of our work of what, uh, what what different gender roles look like in organisations. So are you saying that you don't have to be a woman to choose a certain level of femaleness in the workplace? Not necessarily, but I mean, this is where I'm making uh, quite a strong argument that I think femaleness has an edge uh, over maleness, um, and uh, and we haven't given that femaleness its adequate place in our organisations, within our teams, and within our companies. Can you just define femaleness for us then? Well, a very difficult thing because I think it's largely an individual choice, but I, I think. Uh, if I had to take a, a stab at it, I, th- I think it's really about how uh, women choose to bring 
their, their innate qualities that they have as well as some chosen qualities into the workplace and then how that works out uh, in their role and through their personality. Like what? Um, one of the things that I think is really key for the modern world is, is the quality of gentleness. Uh, I'll speak about attentiveness in, in, in a little bit, but something that, I, that, that we're finding in our work in organizations is that you know, when we go and collect stories from staff as, as we try and uh, understand their experiences of the organizational culture or any other complex phenomenon that, that they're experiencing in the organization, there, there's this issue around gentleness in the way that business gets done. There's kind of an implicit assumption that, that it's got to be kind of driven by a maleness aggressiveness that is uh, combative and, and very energy focused, uh, but there's, there's very little space for a gentle approach, and, and that's also a very challenging uh, discussion for men, because I think men struggle to figure out what, 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 you know, what is the benefit of a gentle approach? What place does a, does a quality uh, like that have in our organization? And then most importantly, how will it, how will it help us move forward? Um, and, and that's where I'm making an argument around the attentiveness that I think women have, femaleness has. Um, and, and, and I draw the analogy to new moms, uh, and, and I think linking to a discussion with Kirsten, this is, a, this is an apt analogy. I mean, you know, a new mom, one of, the, one of the defining qualities of her femaleness, I think, is her attentiveness to the baby. She's got to be really in touch with what the baby is feeling, because this baby can't communicate anything except pain, um, especially in the early stages of life. And so, so the, the, the mother's attentiveness has really got to be in tune, and this is what new moms are really good at, being, being able to sense what the baby's needs are and when, when is the right time to do what. And, and, and I think it's that kind of a quality uh, that, I, that I think gives femaleness the edge over mm. rehumanizing people in our institutions. I suppose we have to use our, or the choice of adjectives very carefully. I mean, gentleness sounds like a lovely, caring thing. Equally, you could call it softness. Um, you know, it could be... Defined as being a little bit sort of wussy, you know. So you have to be quite careful with gentleness. That while yeah. some people may perceive it as being a positive thing, somebody else may see it as actually not very effective. Yeah, a lot of people might say no, but that's a soft issue. You know, that doesn't have any place in our business. We're we're, we're about business and we're about the hard issues. And and I think one of the realities that uh, leaders have to face up to is that the the soft issues of old are now the hard issues. Um, and 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 that's one of those aspects that we're needing to like what uh, like what the soft uh, issues and other hard issues like. Um, I, I think uh, from a general perspective, you look at the, what organizations term a people focus. Uh, you know, it's, it's quite common that you'll hear organizations saying that, uh, that, that, that a people focus is fundamental to their, uh, their, their results and their efficiency. Uh, and, and, and leaders will say things like people are most important asset. Uh, while this is a growing awareness of how important people are to our productivity, it hasn't always been like that. And, and, and sometimes I wonder if that's even enough. Uh, if, we, if we realized the, 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 the deep and true extent to which people are really uh, where, the, where the crux of the organization uh, comes to be. And, and so like I'll give you an example. There's a lot of work in, in the mining sector. Uh, and, and this is you know, where, where uh, people have, have made the faulty assumption that, that, that the, the way people are treated or the relationship that you have with people through hierarchical lines is not that important because that's not what makes us money or helps us get tons of ore out of the ground. 
and, and, and that mindset is shifting. And, and what I liked what Kirsten had to say a little bit earlier is when, when, when looking at uh, uh, you know, flexible hours and how the organization is structured, uh, is that companies are needing to rethink their practices. Mm. Yes. Uh, and, 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 and that sounds glib on one level. It sounds nice. You know, that's one of, I guess that's one of the things we always need to be doing in our organizations is rethinking what we do. I'm not too sure that we're really in touch with, with, with the depth with which we have to rethink our organizations because, uh, uh, you know, again, on the topic of, of humanity in the workplace, we could just, you know, look at it in terms of how people feel their relationship with their boss is a respectful one. And when my boss disrespects me, then I'm, I'm being dehumanized. I mean, that's one level of it. But there's another deeper level to it with the work that we're doing through narrative inquiries is that we're finding that institutions, the organization itself, uh, does things that dehumanizes its people or rehumanizes its people. And I think the whole conversation that you're having around with Kirsten earlier was around the the policies and structures and processes that an organization chooses to rehumanize working moms and, and create that environment that they can come back into, feel regarded, feel valued, feel like they can also contribute while also catering for the new values that they've got in their life because that's one of the fundamental conflicts that, that, that we find when we collect stories about work-life balance is that, is that moms say that their values have shifted. Work was so important to me then but now it's, it's still important, but not as important. And then you have the organization and, and leader, leadership on the other side sometimes taking offense to that because it's unheard of to say that you, know, that you want to have a job here, but this job isn't your number one focus. Yes, I imagine that would be fairly hard to swallow if I, for anybody with the CEO of a company to say, well, my, you know, my job isn't quite as important as it used to be. Oof, yeah, difficult. Yeah, um, interesting you talk about mindset shifting because people say our people are our most important asset, whether or not they do it, whether or not they really think it are two very different things. So I suppose it is all about mindset shifting. But just in, in our last few minutes, um, Aiden, maybe you can just give us, you talk about rehumanizing and dehumanizing. Can you give us some examples of um, rehumanizing in the sort of femaleness sense and without wishing to call maleness uh, dehumanizing, because I, I would imagine it's certainly that's not what you're saying. But give us a a couple of examples that somebody could put into their workplace right now that would rehumanize and a couple of dehumanizing instances that we can be aware of. Yeah, I think on the, on the rehumanizing front, uh, it, it, it's a priority choice. Uh, for example, one of the priorities that we really promote is that people reprioritize relationships and connections. Uh, it, it's one of the, the the most common form of a dehumanized institution that we hear about in the stories that we gather is that is that is that human relationships are are fragmented and and shattered and so so re kind of rekindling and refocusing on the importance of relationship and connection uh, you know we we've seen it in the in the social media world where where the, the extent to which you're connected to someone through a technology tool is actually a very important factor but but it hasn't quite home yet in terms of how our relationships really make this organization work and, and, and especially in South Africa you know there are many organizations who have deep relational capital and, it, and, and you get things done through firstly who you know but also how well you know them and the trust tagging that happens so one of the things that we would recommend that organizations do and again this is where I think the attentiveness of femaleness has an edge is that, is that I think women understand the kind of peer-to-peer human-to-human relationships uh, a, 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 a bit better than men do. Uh, in, so, in less, so yeah. three things I've 
got out of what you've been saying, connectedness, trust-tagging, I like that, um, attentiveness and respect are good ways of rehumanizing the workplace. Dehumanizing, what, what situations can you think of that are dehumanizing that we can all be a little bit wary of? I think, I think uh, we, we just need to be aware of the, the subtle things that we do as we walk into our organizations. So like, for example, when we're driving to work and how we shift our personality or the way we're thinking that maybe gets a little bit harder or that we, that we know, for example, uh, you're going into a meeting uh, and uh, this is a, has a high-priority uh, output required but someone is feeling some area of pain and how quickly we are to um, not create space for people to bring that whole humanity into the organization when they are either feeling pain or how you check your humanity in when you walk into the organization and you take on a persona that maybe isn't really you, but for some reason through your career and your experiences you've learned this is the persona you've got to carry in order to fit in around you or even to succeed. And we kind of leave those, those uh, unique characteristics and strengths that we have at reception. We kind of check them in like it's a dangerous weapon. We're not, allowed, we're not allowed into the organization with our true personality, which, which I don't think is an overstated metaphor. I think, uh, I think there are a lot of organizations who are very, very scared and don't know what to do about the diversity of human personality in the organization. Mm, I guess it's all, it all comes down to sort of choosing how we're going to behave. So you can think about whether you're going to be gentle, attentive, respectful, or whether you're going to be cruel and aggressive and energy-focused. Well, you've certainly uh, triggered a few thoughts there, Aidan Scholz. Thank you very much. I'm going to give you a website if anybody would like to look into what you do just a little bit more in terms of femaleness and humanizing the workplace. Thank you. Thanks very much. Take care. Thank you. Thank you. Aidan Scholz, well, if you would like to find out more, uh, Narrative Lab, and it's www.narrativelab.co.za if you'd like to find out more, narrativelab.co.za. Well, coming up shortly, we're going to be talking to a journalist and author about her conversion to Islam, so do stay with us for that. One thirty, just after, time for the news headlines with Asanda Matsunyani. Thanks very much, Asanda. Otherwise, it is Talking Women here on SAFM. Well, next up in the studio, I have with me a young lady by the name of Karen, Karen Tahira Jays. I hope I pronounced it right. Have I got it? Yeah, got it right, got it right. Well, Karen is a journalist, she's an author, and she has uh, recently produced a book called For the Mercy of Water. She's got a long story which I'm actually going to let her tell. It's always interesting to hear people's my stories here on Otherwise It's My. It's the bit that I like best when women just get to tell their very own stories. So Corin, um spent some time in the UK. She's been a journalist. Uh, she's been around the block in terms of journalism. But she discovered, while she was in the UK, she discovered Islam. And what I think is really interesting was that my first notion of Muslim women was one of intellectual strength. However, um, you say that also you were exposed to the Western notions of women in Islam as being downtrodden and culturally bereft. So there we have two very, uh, two very um, conflicting ideas. But, Karen, lovely to have you with us to tell us where it, it all comes in. Tell us firstly about you. you. You were born to be a journalist? I Thank you, Nancy, firstly, for having me. Um, I, was, I was born to write. Um, I, I studied uh, English at the university and ended a journalism degree after that um, and largely took the job of journalism so that I would be able to write. Um, also Not so that you could stay at home with your children. <laughs> <laughs> that hasn't happened yet. Okay. Um, but I, I um, 
I wanted to write and I wanted to see the world and I wanted to, um, I suppose every journalist wants to bring about good and um, highlight the issues that affect uh, the downtrodden and all of that. And those were my motivations to go into journalism. Plus, I love the magic of, of the headline and, you know, the thrill of the deadline and all of that. Um, but writing was really my passion, and I always wrote. From the age of 11, I've been writing. And um, as you said, I entered, a, I entered a short story competition in 2009, which was the Penn uh, Straczynski Award. Um, and at last sort of shared my work with people. It was the first time I'd done it, and I was, I think, around 28 years old. 30 years old, and um, I won. Uh, it was awarded by J.M. Kutsia. It was a wonderful, um, wonderful thing. And from then, that sort of gave me the courage to give up journalism and move more into teaching, teaching journalism, and then that would give me the time to write. And I started the novel in 2009 and finished it in um, 2012, and it was published in June. What was that short story about, your award-winning short story? What was the content? Like I said, I've always been intrigued in people who are victims of circumstance or society, and I've always been interested in being able to speak out in some way, um, or at least facilitate that. So the story was written in a male voice, which was quite a risk for me to take. Um, I know from studying literature that it, that it is a risk, and, um, and the voice was the voice of a Malawian houseboy, and he was making his madam's bed. And it was really just a story of making a bed um, and his thoughts going through his head as he was doing this. And she sort of comes into the room. There's a conversation exchange, which is very typical of the, the house madam and the house boy. And there's this kind of humiliation in that um, relationship, which for me is a very... Um, you know, it's a very urgent issue that we face in South Africa. And so I wrote the piece and... Um, it had some redemption at the end, but questionable. And I think that um, the story was awarded the prize because the, the voice worked and it was compelling because, of course, we have all sorts of fears invested in that kind of place. And I was taking people into a place, and especially women into a place, which was familiar but also, you know, edgy, mm. um, as well as the male psyche as well, sort of being, being privy to this conversation. Um, and so that it was called Where He Will Leave His Shoes. Mm-hmm. And you can read it online. Okay, you know. Where He Will Leave His Shoes. Already, as you say, sensitive ground, the minute you say houseboy and madam, everybody, well, I know, I'm yes. sort of thinking, oof, that's kind of uncomfortable. So that was what got you the prize. What got you to London? Um, London happened before the prize. Okay. So London was um, from sort of 2000 to 2005 roundabout and that journey was really just the journey I suppose that many young South Africans make. I'd um, done some work in magazines in South Africa and I decided that I wanted to travel and see the world and I ended up in London. There I worked for T&T magazine which is a knock and drop for Antipodeans and South Africans in, in London and then after that um, traveled a bit to the to Southeast Asia and then uh, looked into Buddhism as a spiritual kind of journey um, and didn't find quite what I was looking for in that but found a lot of beauty in that particularly the compassion of, of Buddhism and the, the sense of accountability what one does in this life has repercussions after and I really sort of felt you know, strongly sort of impressed by that and also impressed by the society in Southeast Asia was very um, civilized at that time it was before some of the unrest which happened later on but um, 
Then I returned and I worked for the Middle East Times. I applied for a job. I was back, very drawn. Back in London. Yes. Mm. I returned from Southeast Asia, and after that experience, I was very drawn. I'd met a lot of people traveling who'd been involved with NGO work. I became very drawn to the Middle Eastern region, um, convinced that this sort of area of the world held the crux for most of our present-day issues. So... Um, Having not been able to go to the Middle East myself and report there, I wanted to at least be exposed to a newspaper that was covering issues on the Middle East. It was a very long shot, but I got the job. And um, it was a weekly paper distributed in English for mostly NGO workers and, and activists of all religions in the Middle East. And that's how, as you say, I first became exposed to Islam in a way that was contrary to the prevailing stigmas. Were you looking for it? I mean, you know, your, your journey around the world, you're looking into Buddhism. Were you a bit of a spiritual tourist? Were you looking for answers? I think in a sense that all of us are, I was looking. And, you know, there's a constant yearning to connect with, with something higher, I think, in all of us, even though at times in our lives we might deny it. And um, I was, you know, I traveled, I was raised not in a very strict Christian home, but I was raised in a home where there was a strong morality. And, um, and yet I didn't find, in terms of a spiritual connection, what I was, what I was looking for. Um, I didn't connect with Islam while I was at the Middle East Times. I connected more with the politics of um, the Middle East and that sort of drew me into inquiring more about Islam because I became curious about you know this enemy and I became curious about women especially especially because most of the people that worked for me were Muslim and they came across my um, you know most of my writers and most of the people I worked with and they uh, in terms of that exposure it was extremely positive and I met some wonderful people especially as I say because you your where you were coming from was that you were had been exposed to Western notions of women in Islam as being downtrodden and culturally bereft so you already had uh, something in your head yes. about, about how it would be. Looking forward to hearing the other half of that story in just a minute. You're listening to Otherwise here on SAFM. We're talking to Karen Tahira Jay. She's a journalist and author, and she's telling us about her conversion to Islam. Have you tried booking accommodation online? Booking online means the best rates and widest selection. But which website can you trust? I found that travelground.com is the easiest way to find and book accommodation online. And with their great customer service, you can rest assured that you're in safe hands. So whether you need a hotel in Santon or a great little guest house in Franchuk, go online to www.travelground.com. Travelground.com, the easiest way to find and book accommodation across South Africa. If you're looking for the key to sustainable service delivery in your municipality, then be at the IMF for audit and risk in Daba. This year's theme is good governance with a focus on internal controls and fraud prevention measures in municipalities as well as performance management. Book the 8th to the 10th of April 2013 for the IMF for audit and risk in Daba at the Lord Charles Hotel Somerset West Cape Town. For more information, go to imf4.co.za and take the next step and join the leaders of municipal finance excellence. You're listening to Otherwise here on SAFM. Um, I'm hoping that we're going to get onto Karen's book, Karen Tahira Jays. Uh, she's converted to Islam. She's a journalist and an author. And her book is called For the Mercy of Water. But before we do, Karen, we need to get you out of this London office, or at least we need to get back into the London office and find out, you know, how that, that attitude you had about women of Islam being downtrodden and culturally bereft, your words, 
How that changed? It, it completely changed based on my experience at the Middle East Times. Many of the journalists that I met were very intellectual women, and it was, we had a lot of interesting conversations around... Around what? The Western notions of femininity and how that uh, they challenged me, and they said, well, what about you know, the pressure on Western women to um, constantly look after their appearance? And um, what about the pressure around weight and the constant sort of search for a mate and all of this kind of thing? Um, isn't this some, some form of, not degradation, but a form of, um, I want to say, colonization of one's femininity in a way, um, that a lot of us are sort of fall slave to what we would, you know, ordinarily term notions of beauty, I suppose. And um, whereas Islam, when you go back to the texts, and what I started to do after speaking to them is sort of look at, at the texts and look at um, the history of women in Islam in the, in the time of the Prophet. And those women were extremely uh, sort of, you know, they were, very, they were very intellectual. There was a lot of leadership at that time. Um, in fact, uh, you know, and, and then issues around the hijab and why the hijab is worn in terms of protection. And certainly I became very drawn to this notion and I started to realize also, twinned with that was the way in which Islam was being portrayed in the media. And I, obviously from working inside the media, I realized that there was a one-sidedness there that needed to be investigated on my part. Um, plus a lot of um, cherry picking, if I can call yes. it that, a lot of uh, isolating particular facts yes. to prove a point, which yes. the media are very good at. Yes, absolutely. For all sorts of reasons. Yes. Yes. So um, I came back to South Africa and um, this sort of sat with me and I missed the Middle East times a lot. I became very involved in, the, in, in sort of issues around the Middle East and ended up um, writing and writing and writing a lot more. And really in the process of the novel, there, became, there came a time where I was feeling a strong inspiration in terms of spirituality. And the novel itself is not about my conversion. It's not about Islam. It's actually a story about... It's it's a, it's a political and feminine journey. It's a strongly feminist novel um, because I found a lot of strong feminist notions within Islam when I began investigating it. And when you go back to the texts and you look at the context of, of rules and regulations around divorce, for example, it's very equal for men and women. And the marriage itself is a contract, which is a very equal contract. And I think that what I learned mostly as a journalist is one, one must always go to the source of the information in order to get the correct version of things. Um, even, you know, when you go out on a story, you don't phone 3,000 people before to find out what the story is. You go to the source of the story. So as soon as I went to the source and the text and I found out, um, you know, all of these rules around um, relationships and marriage and dress, especially for women, is really important for protecting um, our dignity. And I found that since I've chosen to take hijab and to put it on, I found a lot more respect um, from South Africans or from all backgrounds and a lot of curiosity as well because I don't look like I, you know, I'm from a culture that embraces Islam. And because of that, and I also learned that Islam is not a culture, it's a religion. And that's also where the media makes a mistake with that. Um, so there's a, lot, uh, there's a lot of intricacies, but again, I went back to the source and, and found my answers there. Um, just going back to the, the, the notions about Western feminism, mm. and I'd like to hear what some of the Islamic feminist notions are. You talk about the pressure around appearance, weight, finding a mate, 
Do those not exist at all if you're a woman in Islam? Do, do you also not have a concern? I mean, you're looking very pretty. Oh, does, yeah. does the appearance not matter at all? Are you also one, might one also not be looking for a mate? No, it's not. It's not uh, I, I, I kind of meant in terms of uh, the pressure of, of, of dressing in a certain way, in a, in a kind of... Um, Following uh, fashion? F- it's okay to follow fashions. Islam is not, it doesn't say don't follow fashion. It just says be careful with what you expose of your body when you are in society. And I think that I've, I've had experiences when I dressed in a Western way, and I've had experiences when I'm not dressing in a Western way, but dressing in still a beautiful way. It doesn't have to mean that you are making yourself ugly or unappealing. It's really just making yourself stronger. One of the things, uh, and lots of questions, and I'm yeah. sure you get this all the time, and it's unfair that you should perhaps, perhaps become an ambassador, but at the same time, as you say, you have gone to the source and you have done your homework. One of the things that one feels, going back to your thing about the Western notions, is that um, women in Islam perhaps have less choice. What would be choices? What would be your take on that? Oh, no, I think that um, women in Islam have several choices, a lot of choices. I would, I would wonder what... Um, kinds of, I think Islam, there are strong rules um, around Islam, and the reason why those rules are there is so that people can actually remain um, morally upright, and so that they can actually, every day for me is a kind of ongoing purification process. So it's sort of waking up and saying, well, in my dealings with human beings today, I'm going to be as upright as possible. And the example that we are given is the example of the Prophet Muhammad, as well as all the previous prophets before him, including Jesus. And um, all of them have given us astounding examples of how to be towards each other and within society as political beings, as social beings, as relationship beings. So for me as a woman, that, that there's a lot of choice all the time. Are you married? Are you single? I am divorced. Okay. So, yeah. Okay. That says something. The feminist notions that you talked about, the the Islamic feminist notions, just give us one example. Okay, an example. I mean, the word feminist is already sort of heavily loaded, isn't it? Yeah, well, I've I've also been through my feminist reading, and I've been through my Simone de Beauvoir and Ariel Levy and all of them. So, um, you know, exploring notions of equality. I think feminism is is not, uh, it's it's gender equality. And in Islam, there is a discrepancy that is made between men and women because men are designed differently and they behave differently and so do women um, but their rights under Islamic law are equal in terms of divorce in terms of the right to earn money in terms of the right of inheritance all of that is all written down and I think that um, what has happened is that uh, there have been cultures in the world which have um, taken some of these perhaps out of context and pushed things too far and there's, there's been extremism and that is frustrated a lot by poverty and war um, and their patriarchy itself so for me I had to look past that and I had to again go back to the source and ask these questions and, and I'm sadly we're out of time mm-hmm. but I'm just wondering if you, you know you articulate your feelings you know very eloquently uh, do you teach I mean uh, do you give talks to other women I, I mean are you keen to pass on your thoughts? Oh, I'd love to. I'm, I'm very keen to be invited to, uh, wherever if, if anybody would like to challenge or, or debate or if they would like to just hear my story. Mm. 
because I've only told you a very small piece of it. And I'm some very of it conscious <laughs> of that. It's yes. quite miraculous. If anybody would like to get in touch with you, how could they do that? Um, they could probably uh, go to my... Well, I'll give you an email address. Do it. Okay. It's Karen Jays, K-A-R-E-N-J-A-Y-E-S, at gmail.com. I promise that we will hear more of your story. Not least, we need to be hearing about your book, For the Mercy of Water. So we're going to try and get you back, Karen Jays. Thank you very much. Karen Tahira Jays, thank you very much. And thanks very much to the team here on Otherwise It's a...